Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. This is Jazz Voices, a show that features conversations with faculty from Centrum's Jazz Port Townsend, led by Artistic Director John Clayton. I'm Program Manager Greg Miller. Every great musician has been shaped in part by teachers, mentors, or experiences that resonate throughout their lives. We're accustomed to hearing these world-class musicians express themselves through their performances, but they are also thoughtful, articulate, and witty, as you will hear. I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Centrum's Jazz Voices. All right. Hi, everybody. John Clayton. Welcome to the first presentation of Jazz Voicings. This is a chance for us to connect with a lot of the people, a lot of the instructors that are normally at our Centrum Jazz offerings. There's always the last week of July, the Centrum Jazz Workshop. And we have a ball together, exploring jazz, playing jazz, listening to great concerts, lectures, demonstrations, private lessons. Uh, if you haven't uh, discovered it, please go to centrum.org, check it out. But it's a wonder, really wonderful week. It's been going on for so many years. Uh, and this is our chance to draw from that pool of instructors and get them together in this sort of a chat room and talk about whatever the heck we want to talk about. Um, so my thanks go to Rob Berman, who is the Centrum, Centrum's executive director. Also, Greg Miller, who's the director of programs. And just to let you know, at the end of the program uh, presentation here, we look forward to answering as many of your questions as we can get to. So just jot them down in the chat or Q&A. Um, so tonight's focus is going to be on Woody Herman, better known as the Woodchopper. <laughs> He's the man who led his big band from the late 1930s until his death in 1987. But our view will be from the perspective of the drum throne. And I always tell my students, it is royalty to play drums. They don't even call it a chair. They call it a throne, right? So we have three drummers who played with Woody's, played Woody's music, two of them with the maestro Herman himself. And our drum section is gonna consist of, say hello to Gary Hobbs, who toured with the band um, and uh, also the other two people who toured with the band, but under Woody, under Woody Herman's leadership uh, are say hi to Jeff Hamilton and Joe LaBarbera. So the, the, but the perfect person to lead tonight's discussion is one of the most creative people I know, Matt Wilson. So Matt, I'm turning the floor over to you and oh. I look forward to this awesome evening together. Beautiful. It's great to be part of this uh, this new program. So thank you, John, and thank you, Rob and Greg and everybody at Centrum and to these esteemed panelists today. Check this out. So uh, 
a little known Matt Wilson fact is that I was on the Woody Herman band too uh, for two weeks in January of 1988. And um, I got fired, but I learned a lot. And, um, you know, just like anything, you, you tumble and you, you learn and you, you move on. But um, since that time, I've, uh, I've learned a lot more about music. I learned and I actually re have recorded, I think, with everybody in that band at a certain point. Uh, even Mr. Tiberi, I played on this record of Mr. Tiberi. So it was pretty fun. But um, I want to uh, first point out these great uh, players are uh, uh, not only they're great human beings, and I consider them all uh, great mentors. I I first uh, became aware of of Woody Herman's band through uh, through a teacher of mine, and 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 I was I was in high school, and then I would sit I sat in with this band once. Uh, it was a, a union uh, band, and I was thirteen or fourteen years old. And the first tune that I, I sat in on was Woodchopper's Ball which is a great hit of the Woody Herman Orchestra. And, but in the corner of the chart, it said rock because it was, a, it was more, they thought of that as like a rock, rock and shuffle, a rock tune. So they go, da, 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 da. And I went, da, 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 da. I played like a surf beat. <laughs> I got a lot of glares. But anyway, uh, I didn't do that on the band when I got fired, but I probably, probably did things equivalent. But we have, um, uh, I learned about each of these gentlemen first, probably through recordings they did with large ensembles, big bands. Um, Jeff Hamilton from a great album called Roadfather. That was uh, a directed disc record. We'll talk about that for all you people that want to, that are curious about that. And uh, Joe through an album called the, the Raven Speaks. That's the first time I heard Joe too which is a really cool record. And for me, it was kind of avant-garde because it was a big band that was playing different kind of music that I was used to. Not pop oriented like Maynard's band at the time, but really playing edgy material. And Gary, of course, through uh, Stan Kenton Moore, but we'll talk about how we were both on the band without, without Woody. So I think we'll start with Joe. Joe, um, you were 20 years old when you, start, when you joined that band. That's, I think, Next to Chuck Flores, you might be the youngest person to have gone out with the band. He was 19, I think, or something like that. But, uh, uh, but tell us about how the gig came about and, and your, your first night and your, that whole, you know, how, what led up to getting the gig and then getting, keeping the gig, let's say. I actually got the call um, two years earlier than, than when I joined the band. Wow. But I also got my draft notice at the same time. So um, I went into the army for two years. And then when I got out, turns out they, they were in need of a drummer. once again, I mean, the, the turnover was pretty good on that band. So uh, they called me again two years later and uh, boy, I was thrilled to, to go out and do it, man. Because, you know, after playing marches and, and that stuff for, for two years, man, I was happy to be able to sink my teeth into something. And I'd always wanted to be on that band since the time I was a kid. My brothers and I listened to all the big bands, you know, but mm -hmm. Woody's band was close to our heart because so many of our friends, or not friends, but so many people from, from Western New York had been on that band, you know. The whole sax section, you know, Joe Romano, Larry Cavelli, Sal Nistico, yep. you know. Um, we also knew Paul Fontaine and Phil Wilson who were on the mm -hmm. band because we, they were our teachers at Berkeley. So there was a there was a strong connection. So I, w I was thrilled to get the call. And I, I can still remember uh, flying into LaGuardia and then catching the bus with my drums underneath. And then when you come out of the Lincoln Tunnel and you see that the, the New York City, like right in front of you, like, you know, it's like right out of a movie, man. You know, like yeah. my, I'll never forget that image. I was so thrilled. 
even thrilled once I checked into the uh, Paramount, Paramount Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> boy, oh boy, $14 a night. Anyway, yeah, I, I was I was happy happy to be on that band. Very happy to be on the band. So your first your your first gig was in New York City with the band, or did you just left from there? They flew me in a day early, okay. so that I could hear the band one night and then uh, you know start the start the following night. I don't remember who was playing, but it was someone that definitely was way out of their league. So I mean, I understand why they wanted to make a change, and that's I'm just saying that because you know. This, this person was not ready yet, mm -hmm. maybe later on, but I felt pretty comfortable at that point thinking, you know, man, if they, if they could actually put up with someone that, you know, that plays like this, I'll probably sound not too bad tomorrow night, you know? So uh, <laughs> the next night was a dance and that's always preferable to break in on, you know, especially mm -hmm. on any band, but that's, you can really ease into it. I walked into the dressing room and I'm getting set up and Woody comes in right behind me and I, I turned to him and I said, hey, hi, Woody, I'm, I'm Joe LaBarbera, I'm your new drummer. And he says, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we, I got to write go, that one down. We'll we go see. Out, yeah, we go, out and we, hit, we go out and hit the stage. The band is, uh, Am I taking up too much time here? No, no, please. The band is, is uh, Sal Nistico, Frank Tiberi, Frank Vicari, and Tom Anastas, Charlie Davis, uh, Bobby Burgess. I'm not sure if Al Porcino was on the band yet. Bill Stapleton, Alan Broadbent, and Peter Marshall, bass player from town here. And so Woody counts off Woodchopper's ball and we start to play and I, I think, oh boy, I'm gonna hit this stuff, man. I'm gonna make this hit, man. Cause you know, Woody, Woody needs to hear my stuff, you know? So we start playing, playing along and he turns around and he goes, backbeats, man. You know, so I immediately start doing the, the wood chopping and then we'd finish that, everything was cool. And then the next thing up was probably, uh, I'm not sure if it was don't get around much or can't get next to you. I mean, we played all that whole set and I could tell that things were going well. I mean, we've all, we've all talked about this. I know, uh, you know, any of us that have listened to all those records, we learned those charts by heart. So I didn't really need to read anything that night, you know? So it went pretty smoothly. And about four tunes in, Woody introduced me to the audience saying, this is our new drummer in the band. I felt pretty good about that. Wow. So. I like that we'll see line. That's fantastic. <laughs> and you did it, you were, you were on it for, for um, how long did you do the duration of the, of the, of your time in the band? I was on for one year. One year. And you did the record. What, what part of the um, tenure did you do Raven Speaks? That was sort of toward the end, you know, uh, uh, Chuck Mangione had called me, wanted me to join the, the band. And I had always wanted to play with him and I always wanted to, I, I, wanted to get into a small band as well. But that album was done in New York at, uh, I forget the name of the studio, it was one of the big studios and it was, um, oh, the engineers escaping me. Anyway, I'm in there setting up my drums and Mel Lewis comes in, introduces himself and then proceeds to sit right behind me while we're recording. It's right there the whole session. Yeah. You know, 
And then when it was over, he was very cool. We were complimenting and we were friends ever since. Wow. No pressure. No. <laughs> no pressure. Jeff, uh, describe your getting the call, your first gig, um, the perils that go with and with that. So, I mean, I know these stories, but it's great to hear them from our audience. So. Yeah, well, the, the stuff I told you, I just made up. Now you get to hear, hear the real story. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, I had been playing with John and Monty Alexander for two years. And uh, like Joe, I had wanted to go on Woody's band because, like all of us, we had listened to Dave Tuff and Don Lamont and Jay Canna and uh, Soph. And, I mean, all these great drummers that, that we wanted to follow. I wanted to follow to see if I had a shot at doing that. And with John Clayton's help, when I was in college, you know, he said, who do you want to play with? And I said, Woody Herman, Cal Basie Orchestra, Ray Brown, and Oscar Peterson. Those are my four choices. And so uh, he, he, I said, how do I go about that? He said, yeah, how many uh, Woody Herman records do you have? I said, about 10. He said, you need 310. I said, oh, got it. Okay. So I went out and bought all these records and discount records the next day, skipped school for two weeks. And... Uh, that started memorizing all these things. So um, it was it was a real dream of mine to go on Woody's band. So by the end of two years with Monty, uh, I thought, you know, let me see if I can get on the band. So Birch Johnson, a trombone player who had replaced Jim Pugh, was on the Tommy Dorsey band with John and me. And he was playing lead with Woody then. So I called him and I said, next time you guys make a change, let me know. And he said, you want to leave Monty Alexander's trio to come on Woody's band? You probably make less money. And I said, that's okay. I got to play that book. And he said, okay, but whoever comes on, Woody wants to stay on for a year. And I said, okay, you got it. So they called me and they offered me the money. It was $100 less a week than I was making with Monty. So I told Bill Byrne, the manager, I said, can you meet me in the middle? I'll take a $50 a week pay cut if Woody can. And I didn't know Woody had all these financial problems, you know, with the IRS, or I would have never done this. 23 years old, you know, stupid. And so... We went back and forth a couple of phone calls. He said, okay, Woody, Woody said, okay. Well, that was the biggest mistake I could have made because the first night, as Joe said, they bring you in on a dance. That, and if you stink, they can send you home and nobody really uh, has heard you because they're dancing. You know, they're not sitting there listening to a concert. So they always bring in the new drummer on a dance. So Dandy Imperial was getting off the band and I came on and it was a dance in, in uh, someplace in Pennsylvania and they sold so many tickets that they had to put too many chairs on the dance floor so there's no dance floor so it turned into a four-hour concert well woody i think secretly loved it because he threw the whole concert book at me because he was bugged that i, I asked for 50 more dollars a week you know <laughs> and he had just come off his, his car accident where he went to sleep in his corvette and he lost all of his teeth on the steering wheel he broke his leg above and below the, the right knee so he came out in a walker with a bicycle horn to blue flame. You know, it's da, 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 this like funeral dirge, you know, to open up the night. And here comes Woody with the walker. And I'm going, oh my God, I've made a terrible mistake, you know. And he's got a bicycle horn on the walker, ooga, ooga, you know, as he comes out the blue flame. And so, you know, he starts off with four brothers. And I don't know what he's going to play next, but like Joe, I, I didn't open the book until the very last two to the night at four hours. And uh, he took his bar stool and he shoved it right against my bass drum, which bugged me, but I kept my mouth shut. He crawled up on the bar stool with his back to me for the whole set. 
and he just threw the entire book at me. Joe Lafayette, four brothers, you know, fanfare for the common man. And he ended with Caledonia, which is 20 seconds or six seconds of chorus and 20 solos. Everybody plays on it and the drummers last. And so I was getting kind of steamed by the end of the set. It's like, look, man, I'm the right drummer for the band. Why are you doing this to me? So Caledonia, Fred Hirsch was the piano player. And I, I guess they hadn't been playing it too fast. And I said, how fast does it go? Because Jake Hanna, we all tried to play Caledonia to Jake Hanna, 63, 64. If you could play that tempo, you knew you were ready to go on Woody's band. And so Fred, not knowing me, because we played fast, you know, Bonnie, Bonnie and John, we played fast. He said, just play as fast as you can. So when he goes, one, two, three, four, and Bruce Johnson had a stopwatch. And at the end of every chorus, he was holding up six fingers, six seconds of chorus after every uh, chorus of the solo. And I just ripped through that for 20 minutes. And I got off the set, matter and hell, and I walk over to Woody, who's hiding by the kitchen, you know, so, so people can't say hi to him, you know. So I walk over and I said, I said, Mr. Herman. And he looks up at me and I had my hand out. I said, I'm your new drummer, Jeff Hamilton. He says, I know who you are. You sound marvelous, right? Now leave me alone, pal. And that was it for two weeks. We didn't talk for two weeks. You know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a good two weeks. No, I'm just teasing. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, Jeff, is, I'm, Jeff I, is that the same story where he told you about the tempo of that of that tune when you ask him no that was later that was on uh apple honey that was later on uh because he'd had his mouth completely rebuilt so he couldn't play the clarinet like he was used to playing it before and so we're in seattle at the paramount theater and i've been on the band a couple of weeks you know feeling pretty good he was talking to me they brought out mark johnson on bass who joe and i have had the pleasure of playing with and, um, and Pat Coyle, the piano player. And so we had a good rhythm section. Woody liked that rhythm section. And he wanted to get that solid because we were gonna do three records in, in January of 78. I went on in July of 77. So we're playing Paramount Theater. And uh, I thought, well, they must be playing Apple Honey really fast because Caledonia was fast, you know. And Apple Honey, well, I, uh, he counted it off slower. Now Woody's band, as Joe will tell you, that he would give you four beats and the drummer would put it where the band's used to playing it. He didn't expect you to keep his tempo. In fact, he told me after two weeks, he said, don't forget, this is your band, pal. So you were just kind of expected to, to take the bull by the horns and take, you know, take the tempo. So I, he counted off Apple, honey. One, two. Now, when Woody set up to count off, you better take his tempo. But I didn't know that. So he sets up like this. And he pauses and he kind of goes, ha, one. Two, one, two, and we got, and he's frozen in front of the bass drum. And I'm going, oh no, I was supposed to take his tempo. And the band, Alan Bazzuti's playing lead, we're ripping through this thing. And, and so it comes to his clarinet solo, and he's still frozen in front of my bass drum, standing in the same position. And I said, Woody, clarinet solo. And he hobbles over to his clarinet, and he gets his clarinet, and he goes, squirt, squirt. Through the whole solo, never got a hold of it. Slams his clarinet down, turns to me and says, "See, they can't play that this fast." <laughs> <laughs> so, so we never played Apple Honey that fast again. <laughs> That's on. Um, speaking of which, this is a great one. Woody's Goodies. Oh, it's that's a great, a great record. record. Yeah. yeah. Awesome record. 
Thank you, Jeff. We'll get back to more. Well, I was, it's one of the Caledonia things was, I was, was going to ask. Gary, uh, describe your, uh, your situation of being with the band after Woody had passed for myself also. But uh, did you uh, tour the Northwest or the whole, you were out with them for a while? Well, when they, <clears throat> the first one, the first gig was 10 days after 9-11 uh, in Ogden, Utah. And then he came up or the band came up through the Northwest three or four more times uh, in the West Coast, and I would, I would do those gigs. But it wasn't like a traveling on the bus thing. Yeah. Um, I had always wanted to play in that band. My dad was a drummer. And when I started playing the summer before my senior year of high school, my dad gave me a bunch of records. And uh, he, had, he was a drummer, but he wasn't like very technically good. He was just a, a good swinging timekeeper guy. And he loved Woody. He loved Don Lamond and uh, Davy Tuff. And he gave me all the stuff with Jake, the early 60s. And I would just practice all day. And then he would come home and he would say, how's it going? And I'd play whatever, you know. So I was like, same with the other guys. I had everything memorized uh, deeply, you know, before I even hardly played. So when I got the call, they sent like uh, all the charts and a CD, kind of a care package to learn. And I knew pretty much all the material, but I memorized it. Jim Rupp was on a lot of the recordings and uh, Jake was on a lot of them. And so when I met the band down in Utah, it was a real weird day because of the being so close to when 9-11 uh, was, there was nobody in the airports. It was just guys with uh, M16s and stuff. So when we got there, uh, we're all getting dressed and there was a dress code that had been laid out. And I knew Frank from when I played with Stan, we used to share the stage on, on gigs all the time. And he had, in the old days, he was a little bit more uh, difficult to get along with, let's say. And so I didn't know what to expect with him. And so I had all the, I had a sports coat and a tie and all this stuff on. And he walks up and he goes, are you the drummer? He's pinning red, white, and blue pins on everybody's lapels. And I went, yeah. He goes, well, what are you wearing that goddamn coat for? Drummers don't wear coats. And I'm like, great, you know. And uh, that was, although I didn't want to wear the coat, I would have rather had a nicer introduction to him. But we went out to play and, um, Everything was just as was on the recording. Paul McKee and Fed Chuck were on the band. And they were right next to me, and I knew those guys. Jerry Pinter was playing. Chuck Bergeron, Chip Stevens was playing piano. So it was a really good, it's the best ghost band that I ever came close to playing with. They were great, and they were real buoyant in the, in the time and everything. So uh, that was the main impetus I had was just not to... Uh, not to let anybody down because it was their band. These were all guys that had played with, with Woody's band. Mm -hmm. And um, I, the one thing I remember mainly is I would like learn Watermelon Man and stuff when I was a kid. And my dad would come home from working. How's it doing? Well, I can play. And they go, great. And I put on After You've Gone, the Holman arrangement. And I said, but what do you do about this? And he goes, oh, don't worry about that. You'll never have to do it. <laughs> well, we play that with with uh, Woody's band. Frank countered it off, and it was way up there. And I remember there's a 
maybe uh, two choruses where the two trombones play unaccompanied. And the whole time I'm just trying to get blood back in my ride cymbal arm, you know. And I, I look to the heavens and I'm like, you lied to me, you son of a bitch, you know. <laughs> um, but the whole, the whole experience to me was, it was out of body in that that music had been with me for decades and I'd never had the opportunity to play it with that band. And even though uh, Woody wasn't there, it was a very touching uh, thing to me to be able to do it. If I can interject, Gary, on After You've Gone, Jake Hanna told me that I came out on an album, 1964, with the black and white cover on Phillips. Right. And, uh, and they recorded it in November of 1963. He said, and it's like, hi hat forever. I mean, rigor mortis sets in. It, it is right. turning it through. And so he said, everybody was up after that take, and they walked into the, to the, the room for the playback. And the, all the engineers and all the staff were crying. And they said, what's wrong with you guys? That was a great take. And they said, John F. Kennedy was just shot. Oh, man. As they were recording after you've gone. You know? Oh, so no kidding. Pretty wow. bizarre, pretty bizarre story with that recording. So. Oh, that's deep. Yeah. Man. And it came out in 64. So. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's 63, man. I was just listening to that stuff the other day. That's my favorite. I think that's my favorite big band, personally. Oh, well, that's, Joe that's, and I thank you, Gary. Thank you. That's, that's okay. <laughs> next, next is Raven Speaks. And then there's a few <laughs> others. Uh, um, Jeff, I, well, I was wanting to ask this question, but I think we're, we'll go back to, well, let me ask this question. The great thing about that, one of the things about doing that band was you have, you were doing, um, you had to respect the legacy, you know, Apple Honey, Bijou, all those kinds of tunes, Woodchopper's Ball, and uh, but then you but people were writing for the band, and so it you know I, I was wondering, especially in your your eras, your era, Joe, especially early seventies like that, had to be a kind of an interesting thing to 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 do, right? Because it was you guys were playing more funk and all this kind of stuff, but then you'd still have to deliver and be uh, authentic or honoring that traditional of the legacy of the band too. You talk about that a little bit. I know some people had, you know, some people really knew all that music. Some people come on that I remember I talking to and they were like, yeah, I didn't really know the older stuff. I just played the stuff that we were playing at the time and had to learn the older stuff. So it's interesting. But can you talk about the, that balance of, of the legacy and, um, and then the new music you guys were playing? Want to go, Jeff, or you want me to go? No, go ahead. You were first. So yeah. Okay. All right. So, I mean, yeah, they, the thing about Woody and I know uh, Jeff. You're frozen, Joe. He gets choked up every time he thinks about me. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you start, Jeff? We'll get yeah, all right. Yeah, well, for, for, for me, you know, Joe and Ed Soap had gone through the rock period. And, and I, I was, as John Clayton would say, I was pretty much a purist. If it wasn't swing and I really I wasn't interested in playing it. And so, uh, I didn't. I don't know if I would have gone on the band when Woody had changed to do all those things. Um, and so by the time I got on the band, he went back. It was after the the, the Carnegie Hall anniversary concert, and he was back the Four Brothers and swinging. And I got news for you, and yeah. and so that's why I wanted to go back on the band because it was all swinging. The only straight eighth note tune we did was uh, "Fanfare for the Common Man" to end the night. 
And uh, we played uh, Pavan, Fares yeah. Pavan, with Frank Tiberi playing bassoon. And it yeah. was a bossa nova. But other than, I think we played Corazon maybe twice in the six months I was on the band. But, you know, I, I kind of missed all that. That's why I think Joe should talk about that first, you know, about how Woody was keeping up with the times. And all of them did. Stan, uh, Gary, yeah. you can talk about Stan and, and Maynard's band. In order to keep working, they played the, the, the rock or the pop tunes so they could get into the high schools and the colleges and doing clinics. And that kept the bus rolling on the road for the days off in between the gigs. So, you Didn't you do a record with Chick, though, and Woody, Woody's band? You did. Yeah, that was my last date on the band. And, and I, I actually asked if I could get off the band before that record because I wasn't a huge Steely Dan fan at that time. So um, Chick Corea had written a suite for the band and that I wanted to play. It took up the whole side of the LP and then the second side was Steely Dan tunes. And everybody in the band's going, oh, we get to play Steely Dan music. And I go, man, I don't know that stuff. you know. So I had to start doing homework on the Steely Dan tunes. And Woody asked me to stay on for that record. And that was actually my last day of the, of the first time with Woody before I went back on the sub, I don't know, 15 times or something. But I, I, I kind of held my nose through all that because I, I wasn't really into Steely Dan at that time, you know? Yeah. It's like those stories of the of the Basie band would do those records and some of the cats wouldn't, didn't want to play on those. So so that's why there's different sidemen on Pop yeah. goes to Basie and those kinds of records. Yeah, Basie yeah. plays the Beatles, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's Joe, that one that... Joe, are you back? Joe, Joe's back. I hope right. so. Internet went down, sorry everybody. Uh, Jeff, whatever you said, tell me later, all right? I want to hear every word of this. I just want to thank you for getting choked up and stunned every time you mention my name. <laughs> Yeah, stunned is a good word. Um, so, <laughs> so but Joe, Joe, I think that period was, you know, giant steps with with Soph and Ron, the one that the one with Ron Davis. Was, that that's was a great a, record. So that was after me, but the, oh, was, Alan, Alan Broadbent actually wrote an entire um, symphony, um, the variations on a theme, which we performed with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, and so that was one of the things that was a stretch. For, for that band. And Alan was writing constantly. Bill Stapleton was writing. Uh, Tony Clack, uh, when he joined the band, started writing. Uh, I think they were the, primarily the three, the three writers. At that time, Frank, Frank Tiberi started that arrangement on Giant Steps, you know, at least six or seven years earlier, but, you know, it just took a long time for him to fully form it. But, uh, you know, like, like I say, Woody always wanted something new in the book and so alan was writing a lot back then and then when he left the band and moved moved to los angeles he could devote himself full time to writing and so I'm, I'm sure at that point he started to contribute a lot more too plus the, the the bands that followed my the band that i was on there were a lot of writers in the band you know, like yeah. john fedchock and you know yeah john wrote a lot for the band mm -hmm. a lot of I just think it's, that was one of the the aspects of that is, uh, you know, that's what makes a would make it a lot of fun too. I mean, like just the shout chorus on Four Brothers Alone is such a great thing to get to do. So you know I, uh, that shout chorus, Matt. If I can point out, uh, Don Lamont told me that uh, uh, Woody just wanted you to blow through that. You know, every time I would play to that, I'd try to play the fills that Jake or Don Lamont or somebody would play. 
And so I was trying to execute the fills. It was like, da, 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 drum fill, da, 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 drum fill. And, uh, and, and so Woody just turned around one night. He says, blow through this. He just wanted you to, oh, he didn't care if you caught the band figures or not. Joe, did that happen to you? It didn't, Jeff, but, you know, it, it's absolutely true. I mean, Don Lamont completely ignores yeah. the setups. He just plays right straight through it. And that's, it's, it's brilliant. It really yeah. is. And it, but, you know, yeah. we're all trained in the opposite direction. So it's difficult to do, man. Don was one of the few players, I think, in, in any big band where he would play the fill and he wouldn't play the band figure. He would set it up and get out of the way. And there are yeah. certain players that complained about that. And he said, hey, they, they took music lessons. They should know how to play their parts. You know, I'll set it up and get out of the way. You know, so, I mean, there's some, so and I, I like doing that with people that you play with all the time. Just set them up and say, hey, you got it. You phrase it the way you want. Here it is. You hand it to them and get out of the way. You know. What years was Don Lamont with the band? 49, uh, 48, 49. Nine. Right, Joe? I believe that's right. That oh, right. The, yeah. The, the second Woody started the second herd with Don Lamont. That's how great a drummer he was. When yeah. when you start a band around a drummer, that's a bad cat. Yeah. So uh, so the whole the second herd was formed around Don Lamont after Davy Tuff. He suffered Davy Tuff and uh, 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 and then got the he's the one who got the telegram from Woody uh, to go to to make the gig, and then he followed. The, he couldn't catch up with him. <laughs> <laughs> he kept missing him by a day on the gig. So. Well, Jimmy Jufri, who I knew very well when I was living in Boston, told me he thought what made Four Brothers, what he, for him personally, what, what made it was he told Don Lamont to play free, yeah. basically no metric in those fills. He didn't want right. metric setup. So right. when you listen to it, the first few he does, and then he, then he straightens them out a little bit. We've talked about this. But Jimmy told me, hands down, that was the highlight for him was Don Lamont's playing on that of all the, you know, all the, you know, he made good money from that tune and everything like that. But he said the highlight was that Don did that, you know, that's pretty good when you got three saxes and a baritone and, 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 a, and a sax woodwind player writes it and he talks about the drummer being the highlight. Yeah. Yeah. No, he said by far, he said, you know, he said that was, that was it. And Jimmy was so forward thinking anyway, he loved, he loved writing for that band. He, I mean, he loved, you know, Jimmy said it was a great thing to get to do because they were they were trying things out back then even that were yeah. very hip. In hey, this, Joe, uh, did I ever tell you? Uh, pardon me, Matt. I, no, after sorry. that, after that pacing thing that uh, we did, where they honored the Woody Herman drummers uh, that Joe and I were part of, and it was Jake and and Don Lamont was supposed to be there, but his doctor wouldn't let him come because it was toward the end of his life. So Jake was the elder statesman. And so Joe, Barbara, Steve Houghton, me, I'm going chronologi chronologically, uh, John Riley, uh, Jim Rupp. And so, so I, Joe, I visited Don Lamont shortly after that, like about a couple of weeks after that, I went to the hospital in, in Orlando and I walked in and, and he was, he was coherent. He was in the bed, but then it was about a week after that he passed and I was talking to him. I had a hold of his hand and I said, I said, uh, I said, Don, we sure missed you. I said, we, we, you know, I told him what everybody said about him, and and uh, we said you would have you would have stolen the show if you'd been there. And he just kind of grinned at me like like I know, and he kind of grinned at me and looked, and he goes, "Well, aren't I the hot shit?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, you are. <laughs> I mean, I I went I uh. 
I did been doing a fair amount of research. You know, I mean, we have the big ones that we know about, but man, there's a lot of people that played in the band other than the ones that we really know about. But what, let's talk about the major ones. So Davey Tuff, well, the first drummer was Frank Carlson, right? And then um, there's a, there was, might've been a, Cliff Lehman did it for- Mark Hardigan was in there, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And then Davey Tuff. So let's talk about yeah. the, the, what is the, man, what the artistry of just a real pioneer and a, a real great spirit. That when I read in this, uh, if you guys have never, for audience out there, this is a great book called Leader of the Band, Gene Lee's book about Woody. It's really, really great. Ooh. And, uh, and th they were afraid, they were like scared because it was, there's going to be hipsters. And I thought, oh, we're bringing this older guy on. And the first night it was just like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. Chubby Jackson said, this is like the greatest thing ever, you know, right. that, that they had this guy on the band. You know, right. spiritually, spiritually too, I think he, you know, he was a great writer in the whole thing. I mean, writing prose and et cetera, et cetera. But right. Davey Tuff on those records are so, man, the goof and I, all those kinds of tunes. So yeah. let's talk about, can we talk about that, that, that great pioneer a little bit? Davey yeah. Tuff? With Joe, you, go with ahead. you too, Gary, too. Gary, you want to jump in on that, man? Well, my exposure, again, was from my drummer father. And he, he would point out on the recordings how, how um, he would compare him to Buddy Rich recordings. And he'd say, see how this guy doesn't do what Buddy Rich does there. And he would say, see how this guy, he would actually compare him to Jake and just other drummers to point out that basically all he did and all he wanted to do was play time. Uh, that was the priority and that's what made it special. So he really made, made me listen to the beat and I, I became aware of the importance of that simplicity. It didn't take, I mean, I kept playing way too busy for, and still do, you know, but the, the beauty of it is the uh, just total commitment to the, to the groove and making it feel right. That's, that's what I felt the whole structure of his playing was all about. And I thought, I still think it's uniquely wonderful. And there's so many people that, that build upon that, not just the Woody drummers, but so many other great players use him as a model, I think. Yeah. Sonically too, right? The sound of the yes. drums. Well, everything Even was those lower. recordings, you know? Yeah. Low. Yeah. yeah. Same, with, same with Don Lamont too. My, my dad called him the Mad Bomber because he would uh, just throw those huge bomb-like fills in, but he had the lower tuned drums uh, as both of them did. They were a little bigger and, you know, the sound of the day to a point, I guess. But uh, yeah, sonically, it was tremendous. The, just the ride cymbal sound and just everything. It, it defined that kind of playing, I think. Yeah, if you, I always, for, for people out there in the audience, younger folks, you can always tell uh, that it's Davey tough because at the end of the tune a lot, he'd play those three bass drum hits right. on the cutoff. So da, 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 right. da, 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 exactly. three hits, da, da, da. It was yep. really hip on a lot That's, of those tunes. Exactly. So great. Exactly. And it that carried through to the other drummers in that band too. Yeah. To yeah. a point. Some some of them maybe do a tom tom fell. Yeah. But there's always a tag instead of just bap, you know. Yeah. That, that was yeah, good point. He was yeah, he was some Jeff well, Joe. As Joe Joe knows, Woody would encourage you to do that. But visually what you didn't see on the record is Woody's doing an antic out in front of the drums like this. Yeah. And he says, catch me, you know, so yeah. he wants you to catch them, you know, while he's doing whatever and uh, goofing and he wants the drums mm. to 
imagine. So that would happen a lot at the end of tunes too, you know. Yeah. Um, Dave, so Dave, uh, Dave Tuff one day, uh, Flip Phillips told me, we did the Gibson Jazz Party together one day, and he, I asked him about Dave Tuff, and he said, nobody like him. And he kind of he kind of teared up talking about him, and, and he said, uh, and Flip Phillips is a tough guy. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said one night we had apple honey going so so swinging, and I was right in front of the bass drum down on the riser below Dave, and he said, man, I just kept taking another chorus and another chorus, and the heat just kept coming from the the drums, you know, the whole rhythm section swinging, and he said I just couldn't stop, I just kept playing. He said finally I took the horn out of my mouth and I turned around to look at Davey on the riser behind me and he said he had tears running down his face and i wow. said what the hell's the matter with you and davy said it'll never get any better than this wow so you know that that's what that's what counted to dave tup it wasn't about doing foot rolls and technique and just swinging the band joe you remember shelly would talk about uh about davy tup he loved davy tup yeah you know the thing about you have to when you think about the uh the the world that Dave Tuff inhabited as a drummer, you know, the focus was on at that point, you know, Gene and Buddy Rich and drummers that were that were showmen and and had a lot of chops and took incredible solos. And Dave was the exact opposite. And I it just I was just thinking about it right now. Woody I don't think has ever had a drummer that was the, of the other model. He's always had a drummer that was a timekeeper. You know. And when, when you approach it that way, Dave Tuff approached it as such a complete musician. You know, he brought that whole, that, that concept to the band. And I think it's stayed with the band ever since. Well, I think the book needed that, exactly what you're saying. They didn't need a machine gunner back there. You know, they needed, yeah, and Woody would always say, yeah, the one, that one chart on opening night I looked at, I, I was reading like this, and Woody turned around on my first night, he said, don't you have this book memorized yet, pal? You know, because I was catching everything on the music, but the band was suffering, you know, so he, they needed the groove. For the money you were charging them. Man. Yeah, that extra 50, man. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Mr. Money, money bags over here. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Herb Ellis told me that on Jimmy Dorsey's band one night, that, uh, that he, in the sound check, there was this theater with the lights over the stage and they were really hot. And of course, you know, plastic heads hadn't been invented yet, so everybody's playing calf. And he said, Davy disappeared down the hallway and he came back with a wet sponge as we all did when we played calfskin heads and you moisten the head so the pitch would come down. And he did it and five minutes later. He'd come out and go, bing, 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 ball. Then he'd walk back down to the hall and he'd come back with a wet sponge and he'd sponge all the casket. He did it three times. Fourth time he came back with the mop bucket from the janitor's closet and he threw the whole mop bucket full of water all over the drums and the water sprit trickling off the cymbals and it was ball, ball, ball. And Davy nodded like now we got it. And Herb said I turned around in the middle of the first tune and water's still dripping off of the drums and the cymbals. And they Dave had it right where he wanted it. Yeah, just just to remind our audience that this is a you know a chronological thing. So Davey was in the '40s with the band, and uh, he passed in '40, you know, early '50s, right? Or I think early '50s. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a Gleason book where they interview he interviews a lot of people, and he interviews Philly Joe, and Philly Joe would come up from 
uh, Philadelphia to see Max Roach, and then he said he'd stop home and uh, stop in Newark and see Davey Tuff also. So it's pretty interesting, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're talking about his, his, his dedication to swinging. He wasn't a dummy. As Joe mentioned before, he no. was an intelligent guy. And you mentioned he wrote, was it Metronome he wrote for? He wrote for, for Metronome, yeah. I mean, it's prose. It really is beautiful writing, yeah. you know. So, I mean, this yeah. is a smart guy. He, in a lot of ways, he knew what to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don Lamont, let's talk about that. That's the next, uh, I would say, uh, very pinnacle of uh, – of very imaginative drumming in that band. And again, built the band around him. Yeah. So yeah. Joe, did you know John? Did you know Don? Did you meet him? Yeah, I actually met him when I was on Woody's band. We went to Florida uh -huh. and he was already living down there playing at um, Disney World. He was in Top the Top of the band. world, right? Yeah. He was yeah. he was playing in the house band there. He came to see the band. We hung out backstage. It was fantastic. He was just great. You know, to my mind, he he kind of ushers in the modern era of drummers in in Woody's book and also just I think in big band drumming that 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 newer sound just kind of updated in terms of the of the feel and of course the, you know what he did on on Four Brothers that's that that's a standout but uh, that's that's my take on Don and I can't honestly say that I've listened to a lot of him but I've listened to enough to to, to recognize him and to know that uh, he changed the way that book was played. Yeah. I asked him, we, there was this, uh, in Colorado Springs, there was this jazz party, and it was a smaller party, but the theme was the established elder statesman and the young kid, you know, who, was, who, who adored the elder statesman. So Don was the drummer. They called me and said, would you be the other drummer at this? I said, absolutely, if he promises to have dinner with me a couple of nights over the weekend. <laughs> And so he and his lovely wife, Terry, joined me for dinner. And I asked him, I said, how did you come up with all these fills? And I mean, they're, they're, I haven't heard anybody play like that ever. And he said, and he, he later denied this, that he told me this. So I don't know, I don't know what happened in that amount of time. But he said, you know, Bebop was coming in and the accent of the triplet was on the downbeat. And in the swing era, the accent was on the third note of the triplet. And he said, so I was kind of the bridge between those two kind of styles. And I was trying to play bebop. So I'd, I'd start hanging it out on one of those bebop fills. And I'd, I'd hang myself up. And in the middle of it, I'd say, okay, I got to switch to the other thing. And he said, and then sometimes it would just be, but a boom, and the band would come in and make me sound like a like a, a million dollars, you know. So, wow. so I told him, I told him that later. On, he says, "I never said that. I did. Did I say that? I didn't say that." So, but it makes sense if you transcribe any of his spills. A lot of that stuff is starting on the on the on the accent on the downbeat, boom, boom, you know, those kind of things, and uh, it made so it made it easier to transcribe it, whether it was true or not. That was. Uh, that was what, what I took from it. And then he, he told me his favorite recording, the favorite track of all time that he played on was on Quincy Jones' record. I think it was Way Out West, Airmail Special. And you talk about his bass drum sound, Gary. He, he plays one fill where there's a space and he just goes, whoa. And it's like somebody slams the door to San Quentin, you know, I mean, it's, it's like the heaviest bass drum accent. So, you know, you might want to check that out. Airmail yeah. special, Quincy Jones. 
you know what size bass drum was used on that? I don't, but I think he played pretty much a 22. Davey Tuff is the one of the first, I think the first big band drummer to use a long 20, a 20 inch bass drum in a big band. But it was, I think it was a 16 by 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was reading a little bit the other day, kind of preparing for this, and there was a transitional time <clears throat> with that bass drum sound, and a lot of it was because of the, the size of the drum itself, right. but also just the, the heads were changing and, and the, the heads of the people were changing too with the bebop movement and uh, things just, grab, you know, things just uh, evolved away from like, you know, Krupa's sound and those kind of things. Buddy kind of kept the same uh, 24 thing going through all the years, but, uh, seemed to me that I read that Lamont was at one time used a 24 and then went down to a 22. I was just wondering if you knew what it was on that recording. It sounds like a 22 to me with his with his tuning, you know. Okay. Yeah. You he know some kind of, he kind of muffling on it. I don't know what it was, but it's like, mm -hmm. duh. Right. It's, it's I know what you're saying. Yeah. When I was right. in AC, people used to always ask me what he was like as a person. I got the same question for all of you guys that, that knew him or that encountered him. Uh, what was Woody like as a person? You know, I, I, I want to tell you a, a brief story about early on in the band, we were in Chicago, and I don't remember who I, I it might have been me and, and uh, Gregory Herbert, I'm not 100% sure, but we went to see The Godfather because it had first come out, and well, as we're leaving the theater, we ran into Woody. He was there watching the movie as well. And we started to ask him about that era. Well, the first time I asked him was, what's the name of that tune when the, when the plane's landing in, in, uh, in Los Angeles? And he said, that's uh, Manhattan Cocktails. And he said, you know, and then he starts talking about his, his experiences playing in mob-run clubs. Uh, he actually got shot one time in the leg somewhere. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but... You know, he, he was very forthcoming with that. And also, uh, I mean, we didn't get to spend a lot of time with him because he wasn't on the bus in that period. He was driving his own car. But when you had a chance to, uh, to actually spend some time with him, he was, he was very open and would ask, answer any questions about the band. I have to admit though, and I, this occurred to me today as I was thinking about this broadcast, Woody and I actually got into a, a heated argument one time and, uh, you know, we were both standing in the wings. Actually, it was a country club, and we're both standing off stage, and we're screaming at each other. And, <laughs> and we eventually kind of backed away and, and called a truce. And the, the guys in the band are off to the side. They can't believe what they're, what they're seeing, you know, because I hadn't been on the band that long. And uh, eventually... It, it got smoothed over. I don't remember how we resolved it because I mean I stayed on quite a bit longer. But uh, I, do you remember I, what it was about, Joe? Yeah, what was it about? I was I was way out of line, cats. I gotta admit it right now, man. I was way out of line. We were at a country club, and I ran I ran into some people in the afternoon, and they wanted to see the band, so I invited them to the country club. Well, I had no right to do that, you know. I would that was. That, that's that's their private thing, man. And I wasn't thinking right. I was not not using my head. But of course, being young and dumb, I decided I was going to stand my ground, which is, was a mistake. And uh, 
that's something I got to live with. But uh, I'm just. I'm hey, and that's worse than asking for fifty dollars more in a week, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you brought that up, you know, I mean, when if Woody liked you, you know, and and when I was with, with Woody, he wasn't experiencing as much of a financial hardship. Although we did lose the bus because of of non-payment, we had a bus driver. I don't want to get off off the. The, nope. top, the top here, but we had a bus driver who was an alcoholic for about, I would say four weeks. I'll never forget this guy because we're, we're playing Not the a good gig. thing. We're in there playing the gig and we see this guy at the bar knocking him back. Now this is a hit and run night, right? Oh. I mean, he, he was so smashed. We had to stash him up in the luggage rack of, of the seats. And I think it was, uh, it was, it was either, I don't know if it was Bill Byrne or one of the cats in the band actually knew how to drive a bus. So we're driving ourselves to the gig and this guy smashed out of his mind, you know? So I actually asked Woody for a raise twice. I had to go to Hermie Dressel, who was his manager. Oh. And uh, I got it, you know? So, I mean, he, he kind of, he, if he liked you, and I know he, he I, I know he liked all of you guys, and I gotta say, Matt, he would he would have liked you too if he'd had the experience of, of of hearing you and working with you. But and same with you, Gary. I mean, he was very patient in, in with with a new talent. If he could hear there was a pet potential there, he was gonna work with you. He just wanted you to to make the band happy and feel good straight ahead. Yeah, yeah. He he was. Uh... You know, road father. That's the perfect yeah. word for him because he, he allowed you to grow into your role in the band. He allowed you to find yourself. And it was a great training ground. You had to play when you went on the band. Don't get me wrong. But you also had to had to be learn how to be a human being with other people. And he would always be watching you, you know, always be checking you out. Not Nothing to be paranoid about. You just kind of appreciated the fact that you knew nothing got by him. But he'd leave you alone, you know. He wasn't really on you all the time, unless you screwed up, and then you didn't want to be in Woody's doghouse, you know. He told one guy one night he was smoking weed out in front of a, a back of a country club for a policeman's ball, you know. It's like how stupid can you be? And uh, and he lit him up, man. He he's like, look, you know. And a guy that he loved was out with him, but he left that guy alone because he loved his play, you know. And so he just read this cat and then he brought him down. And this guy also complained he wasn't getting enough solo space. So Woody, Woody brought him down on every tune of the next set and made him play like 12 choruses of everything. And Woody just stood right by his ear, looking at his ear, you know, giving him the ray. And, uh, and man, the cat had nothing going after three tunes because he hadn't been playing. And he said, now go sit down, pal. You're gonna, I'm going to make you wish you never set foot on this band, you know. So it don't, you didn't want to get on Woody's bad side. But, you know, he was right when he did that. And, you know, you, you've got a responsibility on this band. And you can't just act like a fool when you want to. And so, so you know, I, I, he was a great – listen, anybody who has that kind of tax trouble who eventually gets your house taken in the Hollywood Hills – that he bought from Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. And, and the IRS ended up seizing the house after their daughter passed away from cancer. They zoomed right in and got it. So his life was hearing the band, like Stan Kenton, Gary, 
standing in front of the band and living to hear that band every night. And that's what kept Woody going. He loved that music. He loved the band that he had. That was his family. He was a road father. You, just, you know, not to, I don't want to change gears, but I, I, you mentioned Stan Kenton, and I really, I don't know a lot about his personality. Real briefly, Gary, can you just give us a little snapshot of what, what Stan was like? I think there's a lot of similarities. I've talked to other guys that played with all the different big bands. I, I must say, with Stan's band, there's a brotherhood that might be a little closer than some other groups that spanned decades, you know, like uh, you could make friends with Bill Perkins and Connie Condoli just because you played on Stan's band. They'd give you a chance to, to drink a beer with them, you know. Uh, but Stan was, he, he was totally respected by the players. Very seldom did he ever uh, come down on you. For a drummer, the only time we got sideways is if I wasn't trying something new. He, he want, you know, if I were to do something and totally fall down and sink the band, he would smile just because he wanted you to keep, he didn't want you to repeat because we're playing 48 nights, of, 48 weeks of the year. So it get, you know, real easy to get into habit. That was the only time he pushed me. And then the time that he and I got into a big yelling match was uh, in London at the airport because we had a bad review. We played at Ronnie Scott's and uh, it was bad for the whole band, but they singled me out a little bit. And uh, I gave my notice. I told him I wanted to quit. And uh, he exploded on me at the airport and he was a, he'd been having a couple tastes. And how dare you, and I just, I was sitting in a, like one of those little seats all almost in a fetal position and he kept saying, there's no such thing as bad press. These, I can't use all the words he used, uh, but he was basically saying these people have no idea what they're talking about. And how dare you try to quit my band? I forbid you to do it. And, you know, then the next day we were okay, you know. But to me, I learned a lot about him right there. I, I think he was doing it out of, that's really the way he felt. But also, I think he was trying to help me through a rough patch. If he didn't like you though, which was, there were very few guys in my time that were that way, you just didn't last. You, you, would, you would leave, he, he wouldn't ask you to go. But I think he was a fair man and he, he, because of the way he treated everybody, he was very well respected. I have a question here that I thought was, would be interesting. What, what was the best advice you got from someone in the band? about the music and also about the road itself when you guys and we'll talk about a typical what a typical week on the band would be like but do you, do you recall anything that anybody john and i were talking about this earlier you know it's a big band there's like probably 13 other people telling you but i mean uh but what what was do you remember like sage advice from someone and and that's in this particular band about that music well joe likes this story i'll, I'll lead off because joe loves me to tell this story uh I I left Woody's band after that recording I talked about, the Chick Donald Walter Woodrow recording, and stayed in L.A. and the bus took off. Uh, John Riley flew into town into L.A. and he went on the bus and, and, and left with the band. And I stayed in town and joined the L.A. Four with Ray Brown, Bud Shank, Lorindo Almeida. Shelly Mann had just left the group. And so that group was a very light group. And 
I played triangles and wind chimes and puka shells and, you know, all this light percussion stuff, which is, it wasn't really like me coming from Woody's band, you know. And so we only worked three months a year and I got paid the whole year, whether we worked or not. It's like I was semi-retired at 24 years old, living in LA. So I got lazy. I didn't practice every day. I was playing tennis every day, you know, but I got lazy with the drums. And so uh, uh, toward the end of the year, I got a call from Bill Byrne. They'd gone through 13 drummers in 14 days on Woody's band. And finally Woody says, call Hamilton. So. I went out to sub for the first time and and it was at Disneyland, Carnation Gardens, and he counted off four brothers. And that's true. My first night, I like to wear a coat when I play. That's the first, that's the, the only band that I didn't play with a coat on. The first two, Bill Burns said behind me, uh, take your coat off. The drummer doesn't wear a coat on the band. I went, what? He said, take your coat off. So I took my coat off. You know? And so so that night I wanted to, I was through my shirt, you know, I was gassed because I didn't have any stamina. I didn't have my technique up from playing this light music and light quiet bossa novas and all, you know, and Woody was, Woody hated the fact that I was leaving the band at the record session. He said, you're going to hate that band, pal. You need to stay on this band. We're playing music that's swinging. You're going to hate that band. And so he had it in for me right away, you know, so he was just watching me through Four Brothers, the first tune, and I'm gasping, you know, you know, through the fills. Man, is the shout course about over, you know? And so my hair is mad, which I had a lot of at the time. It's matted to my forehead. My, I'm sweating through my shirt, and he's just laughing at me. And after the two, the audience is applauding, and he leads right over the mountaintop, right in my face. He goes, ha, ha, ha. This ain't no arts and crafts band, pal. <laughs> Excellent. So that was the good advice. Don't ever, don't ever take that much time off and keep keep your stamina, keep your chops up. You know, that was Woody actually gave me the best advice. Yeah. I got two bits of advice, one from Woody and one from Frank Tiberi. Now, as Jeff will tell you, and Gary. Frank was only too willing to tell you how to play the drums in a big band. You know, uh, it used to, the old saying used to be that it, there's a, one drummer in a big band and and 15 authorities on big band drumming alongside him. You know, <laughs> but Frank actually said to me uh, one time when we were playing, he said, "Man, catch the sax section too." I was so focused on the full ensemble and the and the brass, you know, for the pops. I wasn't paying attention to some of the rhythms in the sax section. He opened my eyes to that. You know, at 20 years old, I needed that. And it, he was absolutely right. It, it helped me to, to be a better accompanist in that band. And then the bit of advice I got from Woody was, and this is a direct quote, he said, be careful what you become famous for, pal, because you're going to end up playing it every night for the rest of your life. Oh, wow. He was referring to Woodchopper's Ball. But, you know, in hindsight, that that chart was actually a lot of fun to play yeah. and challenging, right? Because it's D flat blues. So I mean, yeah. you know. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. When I played that, it always felt like the band wanted to pick it up because it was just so simple. Did, did you have that feeling too? It's just like, can we just kind of edge this up a little bit? You know, but it had to sit right in that pocket or it sounded stupid. You know? yeah, I yeah, agree. I think that's one that I just decided right up front. You know, because the guys were always trying to get me to, especially the trumpets, were trying to get me to play Caledonia faster and faster and faster. 
it got absurd at a certain point, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. but Woodchopper's ball, that's a statement. That needs yeah. to be in a, in a pocket. I agree. You know, Woody, of course, started in the big band era in the 30s. And because of Jim Crow, he had to do what he had to do. All the bands did. But then, you know, he, luckily he lived long enough and had bands long enough to morph through that. But do you know... Can you explain, or do you have any thoughts on why the Woody Herman bands were, by and large, pretty white bands? I mean, they're they're playing such hip music, uh, and and circling through swinging stuff to bebop to you know you name the style, but the band, the look of the band, with a couple of exceptions, kind of stayed the same. And I, I you know I just wonder. I, I know he was, he, I'm never, not suggesting he was a bigot, bigot in any kind of way, but you just kind of wonder what was going through his mind, especially knowing, because I know he loved Daisy. I know that for a fact. And, and they were good friends. And I, yeah. I know he must have been enamored by Duke and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But any thoughts on kind of how that went with him and any thoughts on what he might have been thinking? I think, didn't Shadow Wilson play with him for a while? Yeah, they're more they're more than you think, John. They're just not documented as much. Bird, I mean, when Bird needed help, he went to Woody's band. Woody got him on the band, you know. Uh, Byron Stripley played on the band. I mean, I don't want to single out all the, all the all the musicians of color that were on the band, but there there were more than than what people talk about. And and I think that a lot of it came from in that band you were recommended by the people who were already in the band yep. and you were their friends and you played in Boston, like Nat Pierce suggested Jake Hanna, you know, uh, they, you just got your friends on the band cause you knew they would work out. And it, and that's, I, Woody was not against that at all. I mean, he was, he would embrace, he didn't really care. You know, if you could play, you're in the band. So there were, there were several, several folks in there that, uh, it's just they, they weren't highlighted like the four brothers Stan Getz and Herbie Stewart and you know and, and so I, I think I think um, you know if we really put it under a microscope there there are a, a fair amount of but certainly not as many as Caucasians you know but I think it came from recommendations in the band within the band yeah, I have to agree with that. That was certainly the case at, later on after I left the band. It was like, you would call it the, the Berkeley, remember Joe, all the Berkeley students would come on. Now, you're included in that. And then Soph got the North Texas State guys on, and then Fedshock got the, and John Otto got the Eastman guys on, you know. So mm -hmm. it kind of went in waves like that uh, from, from your conservatory later on, you know. We were watching that video together, Jeff, the other day with Von Olin, and it was, it yeah. was uh, John Hicks, I think, or Albert Daly. Oh, Albert Daly, yeah. yeah. Joe and Alexander Carl, on... And Carl, and Carl Pruitt. Carl okay. Pruitt, Joe Alexander yeah. on tenor. Yeah. And uh, 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 was it Mel Wanzo on, on trombone? Yeah, Mel was on, yeah. yeah. So it really was just a question of who want, you know, I mean, I agree with you, John. Those bands, for the most part, were white because, as Jeff said, they were being replacements were being recommended by people that knew them. When I was on the band and Alan Broadbent left and Peter Marshall left, um, all of a sudden, Woody got a recommendation from somebody 
and Gregory Herbert and Alfonso Johnson joined the band from Philadelphia. And I don't remember who recommended it, but it was fantastic because I mean that Greg became like a stellar soloist, and Alfonso. I mean, come on, man, we are that friendship, man. That's lasted right to the day, man. We lived together. We went with Wood from Woody's band to Chuck Mangione, and now out here we're both in Cal Art. So, yeah. but that's just circumstances, I think. A lot of times. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I know Gus Johnson played in the band. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It'd be cool to hear some recordings of Shadow with with that band. That'd have been pretty cool. Yeah. Um, there's uh, the the thing I was going to ask too is is about um, I just think for the people to know because this is a I don't want to say a little bit of a from from you and and Gary included too. Uh, uh, the road band kind of aspect. There's this, I mean, that's kind of a bygone, unfortunately, era of being on a bus doing this day in and day out. So could you guys describe, you know, yourselves, what, what, what the, uh, a typical week might be, let's say, even on, on each of those bands. Gary, you want to talk about uh, Kenton for a second about just you well, know, uh -huh. dances, concerts, hit and runs, explain what these things mean to the, the audience. Okay. Well, every week, honestly, was pretty much the same. That was part of the thing. You just get numb. You didn't know. Literally, somebody would, you'd show up to a gig and somebody would say, where were you last night? No clue. Yeah. Where are you going tomorrow? I don't know. You know, so there's this, you're totally taken care of. You have no responsibility. You get there on a bus, you go eat, you get back in the bus. We did clinics at that time, too, so... You might do an afternoon clinic at a school or something. Uh, the books, uh, the, the music we used for the concerts was all the more contemporary stuff, like Jeff was talking about the uh, Chicago stuff and more straight eighth and kind of funk. And uh, there was always that Latin component to Stan's thing uh, and not a lot of swing stuff. But when we play dances, we play Lenny Niehaus and Bill Holman, and so there was, and sometimes we'd set up like a conventional band with saxes, trombones, trumpets, instead of that wing thing we used to do with bones, saxes, trumpets back there. Uh, so th I think there was a sense of of great relief. Not that you, everybody kept concentrating and working real hard, but when you played the dances, it, you could just relax and play swing music. It wasn't I never felt starved for swing, but I mean, it was always put a smile on my face when we played those gigs. The travel part, uh, it just became kind of numbing. You'd Tim Hagen used to be on the band. He would gauge everything by how many cassettes he could listen to. That would dictate how long the bus ride was. Uh, that kind of thing. So you found your own way. We had um, Stan's bus. We had two seats to ourselves, it was called our area, and you could kind of personalize it and have cassette decks and coolers or whatever, you know. Uh, so there was that element of it, but the, just the constant, we had two weeks off in summer and two weeks off at Christmas. And the rest of the time, you just circled. A lot of time in the East, because there's more population. Uh, but you know, I, I did it for almost three years and the, the beauty of it 
was that you got to play every night. And I, I'm so glad that I realized it then and didn't take it for, for granted. But like I must say, after getting off that band, I moved back to the Portland area and Jeff was going to bring it up probably anyway because he tortures me about it. But he, <laughs> he, no, uh, no. The, the Woody's band came to Portland, and I, I'd only been off Stan's band a few months, and I went over to see the band. I was talking to Jeff, and he says, "Come on up here." And I came up on the stage. He goes, "He says, you want a gig?" And I went, "Well, what do you mean?" He goes, "Well, I'm I'm leaving here. They need a drummer. You should take this gig." And like I said earlier, that was a, like Joe said, I mean, it was a dream thing. More than any big band, that was the big band I wanted to play with. And I went, man, I don't know. I just got married and settling in. I had seven nights a week of work in Portland. And so we, I, I said, let me think about it for a second. I just went on the bus, on Woody's bus to say hi to Nelson Hat and some of these guys that I knew. And as soon as I got on the bus, I just went, I'm not going back on the road. <laughs> you get paid to ride the bus. You don't get yeah. paid to play the music. And uh, I still heavily regret not doing it. I could have done it for six months or something, and it would have been it would have been a wonderful thing to do. But at the time, the travel is the part that made it difficult. Uh, and we were in our 20s. It was easy when you're that old to do it. As these guys get older, like cats that were doing it in their 50s and 60s with that much travel. It's just unbelievable punishment, I think. Yeah, we're talking about, about Woody. Um, Joe and Jeff, could you tell, what, what would Woody do? How could he show that he was really like loving the music? You know, when, you, when the groove was perfect and the band was just on, you know, was there some, something that was reflected in Woody uh, that that you let you see that, let you feel that, and if so, what was it? How did it, how did you see that? I used to see, I used to see it when he would lead the sax sections, uh, sax section. You know, he never wore a strap. He played like Johnny Hodges at lead alto, and when he would lead that the the sax section on uh, um, make someone happy or. You know any of any of those things where he led the section? I mean, he took such pride in the band. You could you could actually you could see it in his face almost any night because, as Jeff said, he gave everything to that band. He gave all of his finances. He gave his whole. He dedicated his whole life to that band. So he got his enjoyment out of hearing that band. Like Duke, you know that that the for Duke and for Woody, the band was their instrument. Yeah. So everybody else got the blow. And he was just standing by. And, you know, of course, when you have a hot soloist like Sal or Gregory Herbert, you know, I mean, you know, he stands there and just lets them go. And he loves letting them go and letting them blow. So that's that's where he got his pride from. I mean, he, he loved the band. And if he had a band that he that he actually dug, uh, that 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 was how he got his enjoyment, because certainly it wasn't to travel, as Gary said. I just. I had uh, some itineraries from when I was on the band and between June and the end of August, I was looking at this, there's eight days that are clear between beginning of June and the end of August. It's like bam, 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 bam. But as Gary said, you're playing every night. I can remember being on a hit and run and Bobby Burgess used to sit behind me 
And he was 45 years old at the time. I was 20. And he was exhausted. You know, Al Porcino was in his mid-40s, which at my advanced age, it doesn't seem that bad right anymore. But, you know, back then, <laughs> when, you're, when you're on a bus and you're hitting it every night and you're playing and now you got to sit there, it's, it's hard, man. That is really, you're really paying your dues. But, you know, I, I got off point there. But, yeah, what he loved hearing a hot band and he loved hearing a hot soloist and he would let you blow as long as you want. You know, Joe, leading the uh, out or leading the saxo section because he would be the only alto player in the band. You know, so three tenors and a berry. Uh, I always, when he, when, I, when I'd see him do that, I would always think he was going back to the Isham Jones days where he was the lead alto player in Isham Jones' band. And it's like now I don't have to be a, the leader of the band. I'm just the lead alto player where I started from. You know, in Isham Jones, and I that always the thought always went through my head. And then the second thing about his emotion was that he would be in a zone when a soloist would get a hold of it. Mm -hmm. And you would see him, he'd just be staring at the soloist and he had this pose, you know, where his hands would kind of be like this, you know, and he'd just kind of hover and be totally into the, into the soloist. And then all of a sudden the bell would go off and it's like, oh yeah, I got to bring the band in. And he'd go, ha! <laughs> he'd throw his hands up. And you go, man, he was really in the moment. You know, he really loved that moment. Yeah. And then the, the, the last thing I can say is that, that uh, Joe, you had a picture of him earlier where, you know, he's standing on the balcony with his arms up. And, man, when he was looking skyward, he, that was like the best that the band could get. You know, they, they couldn't get any better than that for him. You know, so those are the moments where I really could kind of feel where he really expressed himself in the band. Uh, a bus, a bus uh, thought that you've asked before, John. After studying with John Von Olin in Indianapolis, and he'd been in, he'd been on Woody's band and later Stan Kent's band, and I said, "So what do I need to know on on Woody's band to go out?" And he said, "Well, all you have to do is look out the bus window. There's a lot of truth out there." And I said, "That's it." And he said, "Yeah, you'll know what to do." And man, I got on the bus, and I'd been and with you, John. I'd been on the Dorsey band, been on Lionel Hampton's band. But after John told me that with Woody's band, man, I was glued to that bus window and looking out all the farmland. And then, man, there's a lot of truth outside that bus window, you know. Wow. And I would listen. I'd have the headphones on all the time, listening. But but that was I, I thanked John for that often. Just looking out the bus window, man. There's a lot of truth out there to learn from. So wow. great. Hey, Matt, do you, do you have an, another question for the guys? I want to get to a couple of questions. I think we should get to these, these questions. We have some good questions here. Uh, go for it. Go for it. Uh, uh, we have, oh, and then I'll go to the Q&A one. Uh, Matt, I have a gig in February. I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> when did the average gigs end? What hour? The concerts were probably when the two drummer hours. dropped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's one. On these tours, what might be a typical day off? Like how much what would you do? did you do, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> when the band comes in wrong after your fill. Yeah, that's a day off. Yeah. Uh, I honestly uh, can't remember. I cannot remember what 
what we did on a day off. I mean, oh, we were traveling on the bus. You know? That's it. The day off, like a, you were on the bus. Yeah, yeah. It'd be like a fourteen-hour bus ride, you know, to the next place, and then you check in at six o'clock in the morning and sleep for three or four hours, get up to a clinic, and do the concert at night. Yeah. You know, yeah. some things don't change. Yeah, right. exactly, exactly. Uh, someone says here, "What do you see as the future of big band jazz?" Matt Wilson, why don't you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> These two guys right here, you know? I mean, John and, and, and yeah, John Jeff, Jeff, they are they are doing almost un what's unbelievable in having a big band today. And and it's growing constantly. I mean, it's got to be tough for you guys right now, not being able to get together and at least rehearse, man. But thank God you guys are still doing it, man, because... Uh, we no. need you. We really yeah. need you. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Yeah. I think there's a you know there's a fair amount of really good uh, of bands you know I mean of all kinds of different sorts now I think it's very I think it's I mean it's, yeah, it's good. We a lot need of New that. York. There's the a the lot of New York. Yeah. So I think all regionally too there seems to be a lot going on with, with that and and different ways of of approaching it and etc. So I think it's great. Darcy Maria. Uh, well, or Evans, Evans's band and uh, some other folks, so it's nice. The number of bands that are that are playing today always come up when the question is posed to me in a workshop or a clinic. You prefer playing in a trio or a big band, and my answer is there isn't one style of playing in big bands and one style of playing in trio. And yeah. Joe LaBarbera played with Bill Evans. You got Oscar Peterson style trio. You got. Bill Evans trio. You don't play the same in those. And Joe, you stay out of this, okay? I know what you're going to say. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, an old joke. Uh, but big bands, you know, you've got the, the Gellington style, you have Maria yeah. Schneider, you've got Bill Holman, you know, you Bill, Bob Florence style. Yeah. You're not going to play the same way in, in all of those bands. So you have to serve the music. Well, just, yeah, there's 16 people in the same size ensemble, but you're not going to play the music the same. Yeah. So there's not just one style of big band, but that's when it, it starts to hit me how many bands are out there right now. You know, I mean, they're not touring around on a bus for economic reasons, like, you know, the end of the, the big band era, but, but they're making music, you know, they're playing great music. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Heath's band was awesome. Gerald Wilson's band. I mean, there's just, yeah. I mean, Liberation Music Orchestra, Carla's music, there's all kinds of different things going on. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's great. You know, there's one story I wanted to, I, I think I told you Joe and Jeff is, uh, but uh, but Mark Johnson told me, or, and Dave Lalama actually told the story that, um, that Mark was on Woody's band and went to audition to play with Bill Evans. And uh, and and they were like, yeah, you got to go do it. And the guys in the band like, yeah, you got to play with Bill Evans. So he went to tell Woody. Woody was all mad. He says, you want to leave this to go play with a piano trio? <laughs> <laughs> I just think that I just you know he he you know he if he and Lovato told me that when he went to leave he was really mad at him. like yeah really why do you want to leave you know just like he, he felt yeah. you know, he really felt hurt that they they wanted to move on or something I thought so after, after he disagreed with me giving my notice for the LA four uh, he came in to hear us at Blues Alley in Washington D.C. and was sitting at the bar and had a couple of tastes which was always great to be around, around Woody after a couple of days. And, uh, and I walked up kind of sheepishly because I didn't know how he was going to receive me. You know, I was still mad at me for leaving the band. 
and I walked up to him and I said, great to see you, Woody. And he goes, you know what's wrong with this band? And he lit into the whole band about what we needed to do to make changes in the band, you know. <laughs> I heard you, you, sound, so you sound all right, pal, but you know, here's what you need to do with these other guys. <laughs> I heard he might've done that one night with the fad band. He was down there, he was like, yeah, it's easy to do this just once a week. You try to keep a band on the road seven days a week. And he was like, oh, <laughs> I heard that. He had it in, he had it in for Toshiko because they won the Grammy one year. And he said, that's a rehearsal band. Band. go out on the bus and get your teeth kicked in every night that's a big band you can't yeah. have a rehearsal band once yeah. a week and win the grammy you know <laughs> you know i think woody was offended by the fact that everybody used his band as a stepping stone you know and for him and let's face it it should be this was the pinnacle for, it, yeah. for him, his book and his band was what it was at, where it was at. So yes, he 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 took a burn when people would eventually leave because he he you know he wanted people to stay longer. But when you mentioned about Mark going to audition for Bill, Mark and I were both on on Woody's band, and we used to tease Bill about that because Bill was on Herbie Fields' band, and that's his all. That's that's it for big bands. We used to tell Bill, you know, Bill. We can make a call, you know. We can get you on Woody's band if you're serious. <laughs> How long do you think he would have lasted? Oh, you know what? I mean, I think he would have. The thing about Bill Evans, and I don't want to get off point here, but like, like, like Dave Tough, man, he would have got into it a hundred percent. Not at that point. And, not and at that Woody, point. Woody would have started featuring him because oh, he sure. knew what he had, you know. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So there's a real quick, easy question. Somebody asked, did Davey Tuff keep time on a ride? Yes. Yes. Okay, next yes. question. We have, uh, I have one. What are some of your, like, uh, favorite recordings of, of that you're not on of the band, but just other, like, ones for the audience that they could check out easily of, of the band? I like this one. We'll hear Woody's goodies, but you guys. Yes. Yes. Joe, I I love I love the stuff Hammers on. I I think that's Roadfathers. That, yeah. yeah, that's what that's where that band was headed, and it was. I mean, it's it's such a wide variety of of styles. I mean, not styles, but of of concepts from arrangement to arrangement. So it's totally there, totally. There. I mean, it's I, I love that. I love that band. Of course, I love the band with uh, with Jake, and. Uh, and Sal and Gordon Brisker and you know all the cats that were on in that era. Um, those are probably my two favorite. Like Woody, um, the live album from um, Basin Street. Yeah, that yeah. One. love that one. Yeah, and of course Woody Woody sixty three and that's that's a classic man. Yeah, 63, 64, you know, I, both of those records. I, actually, I think anything with Jake Hand on it is great. You know, I, I don't think they made a bad record with Jake. Giant Steps was, for me, and I, I told this that when they honored all the Woody drummers at that event, that I think Ed So was the beginning of revolutionizing big band drumming into being more small group oriented and, and playing the hi-hat. You did this too play the hi-hat off the beat, not on two and four all the time, using it as another left hand and feathering the bass drum, but also more active with the bass drum, breaking up the time a little more. And I think that album, 
is representative of, of kind of newer big band style of drumming that Ed Soap is responsible for. So I think that's an important Woody Herman record. Um, I like the Raven Speaks. I'm not, you know, yeah. I feel like I'm on a talk show with somebody saying, oh no, but I love your work, you know, but I, I like that record. I think, uh, 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 one, what's the record? Well, there have been so many reissues of I Got News For You with Don Lamont playing it. That you know, that's just man. Those double time bebop fills in the in the sax section with the with the trumpet lead. That's a great record. I got news for you. Um, and and then early Davy Tuff. The frustrating thing about Woody's band early is you can't really hear the drums. You have to go on solely how the band feels. And the same is true with Papa Joe with the Basie band. You can tell how they, Joe played by the way the band feels. You know. Yeah. So, you know, th th those are great recordings, I think. Wow. Hey, guys, I think we're running out of time. We, oh, I could do this all night. Yeah. And we, have, we haven't even cracked open a bottle, Hammer. What's up with that? Yeah, what's going on? We're all, uh, we yeah, got, we're all, uh-oh, we look out. We got to run a bus, rent a bus and do a hit and run, and we'll just do it all night, you know. The next <laughs> there <week>. you go. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Gary Hobbs. Thank, Thank you, you. Hamilton, Joel Barbara, Matt Wilson. You guys are awesome. I, I love all you. You know that. We love and, you, uh, man. We, we, we got to do this again. Yeah. You know? Talk about all kinds of things. Yes, sir. But praise to Woody Herman. And yes. so glad that you guys were able to touch his, touch his music and touch him. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Have a great Thank night, you. everybody. Thank all you, right. Centrum folks. We miss you. We'll see you next year. Right on. Yeah. Right on. We're going to be back. That's it. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator of Jazz Voicings is program manager Greg Miller, and our host is artistic director John Clayton. Centrum's executive director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples from the place known by the Squalum people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives, and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include Artists in Residence, Music from the Centrum Archives, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020, Centrum Foundation.